0: Good evening and welcome to Taiwan this week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today, we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Mankony of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hello, Gavin. Good evening. And also with us in studio today, we're happy to invite back onto the program Taiwan-based freelance journalist for German language media, Klaus Bardenhagen. Klaus, good to have you back.
1: Good to be back. Good evening.
0: And welcoming to the show for the very first time, uh, we have Christine Chow, who is a business and tech reporter for The China Post. Uh, Christine, good to have you.
2: Thanks for having me, Keith.
0: On the show today, International Women's Day was marked around the world this week with celebrations and protests. We'll look at what folks got up to here in Taiwan. Then, a new report out from the U.S. is highlighting lingering human rights issues in Taiwan, We'll discuss what they found. Gavin may or may not have some choice words for the U.S. We'll have to wait and see. Then in the second half, we've got a business and tech reporter on the show. So we'll be talking about some business and tech news as Taiwan's own Hanhai Precision Industries makes moves to acquire Japanese hardware firm Toshiba's memory chip business. Don't really know what those words mean, but thanks to Christine, I will soon. And we'll round out the show with an extended discussion on the Thai administration's project of transitional justice with Dr. Ernest Caldwell of the School of Oriental and African Studies. Smart guy. have interviewed him before when the Thai administration was just settling in. So uh, I'm very interested to hear what he makes of the way things have been going now one year on. But first, uh, we're going to jump into the main headline of the week. Academic freedom has been called into question at Taiwan's universities after it came to light over the weekend that many have signed agreements with Chinese institutions promising to avoid politically sensitive topics in courses offered to Chinese students, Gavin.
3: Yeah, this number jumped this week. Apparently at the beginning of the week, the officials from the Ministry of the Education said at least some 30% of the island's colleges and universities have signed such a letter of an agreement with Chinese institutions, and that number jumped later this week to about 80 of the 150-odd colleges and universities across the island that had signed this said agreement with Chinese universities. Mm -hmm. Now, the incident, of course, all stemmed from the leak of documents from the Shixin University in Taipei. That happened last Thursday, of course, when basically it came to light that the university had signed agreements with Chinese universities that politically sensitive topics such as the One China, One Taiwan, Two Chinas and Taiwan independence would not be covered in courses offered to Chinese students. Mm-hmm. The Ministry of the Education turned around and said, hang on a minute, you can't do this without first telling us, to which the university said, yes, we can. The <sighs> Ministry of the Education said, no, you can't, and they tit-for-tat went on there for a bit. And it transpired that apparently they couldn't do it without getting government approval because they might have been in violation of Article 33-3 of the Act governing relations between the people of the Taiwan area and the mainland area. Oh, yeah, that one. Which it's, says that any, it's a good inst- article. any institute in Taiwan that signs any agreement with its cross strait counterpart has first to seek approval from its education, so they need to seek approval from the Ministry of Education, or if other things, they need to seek approval from the central government.
0: Now, it's a, it's a bit of a question whether or not, you know, it's right to characterize these letters as agreements necessarily. Some of these universities are saying they were merely informing uh, Chinese universities that, you know, we're not going to cover this stuff. So it wasn't necessarily an agreement. They were just laying out what their coursework looked like.
3: I do like this quote, though. The Shershin University Students' Association president. This is the Students' Association. I come from London. Mm -hmm. This is an odd thing for a Students' Association president to come out with. But apparently, Canella Chen said that she backed the university's signing of the One China Agreement proposed by Beijing, and she accused the government here of political black hands of manipulating the issue.
0: Right. And that's which is
3: kind of an oxymoron when you actually think about who's manipulating the issue. That
0: was kind of a charge that came from uh, other voices in the blue camp, basically saying that this issue has been blown out of proportion uh, and that folks are politicizing it. The question of just how many universities are involved in this is still somewhat open, but uh, my understanding is that the Ministry of Education kind of has a probe ongoing, and 80. they're going to suss it all out.
3: Eighty. More than eighty. That more than yesterday. eighty. That was yesterday. They said more than eighty.
0: More than but eighty. they reckon
3: that number could rise as mm-hmm. their investigation continues.
0: All right. So, Klaus, as you've seen this story kind of balloon up over the last week or so, uh, what issues does it raise for you?
1: Well, there are two things that come to mind. First of all, I think, were people really surprised about this when this came to light? I think it's more like a tip of the iceberg thing. I mean, if you look at universities, tourism, uh, government institutions, I'm sure there have been a lot of behind-the-scenes agreement between Taiwanese and Chinese side over the years that people don't know about. And um, maybe they do come to light. Maybe there will be more whistleblowers or leaks. But um, I don't think people are really surprised that this happened. Mm -hmm. Because
3: it's all aimed at getting more Chinese students. It's not not aimed at the universities changing their political affiliation. Yeah, that's one thing. I mean,
1: we have a lot of universities who will be closing down soon if they don't get more students and where they're supposed to get them. So China was a good source of customers for them. Well, the other thing is, I mean, Taiwan does not really need any political indoctrination classes, right? Even if these Chinese do not get taught this stuff in class, they they live here, they spend time with their Taiwanese classmates, they see how everything works. I mean, they will get all these important impressions about Taiwan being a free society that they will take back to China anyway. So let's not pretend that they will all stay indoctrinated just because um, the university signed this letter and doesn't teach them these classes.
3: God forbid should they stay indoctrinated. They might go home and have an opinion of their own. But I didn't say that. So.
1: No. That, uh, uh,
0: who, 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 who just said that? Whose voice was that? Uh, we don't even know. We can't confirm here. Uh, but So, Klaus, it sounds like you're kind of saying that from the perspective of uh, these universities and those that care about academic freedom, maybe this is a deal worth making just for the sake of making sure these universities have enough students to keep going?
1: Well, I think it... It should be transparent, and then people can make up their mind about it. And if it actually contradicts a relevant law, then of course it's not okay. But um, the mere fact that there are behind the scene behind the scenes dealings um, is not a is not a big surprise to me. I'm saying transparency, more transparency would be good. Hmm. All right, uh, Christine, what do you see here?
2: Um, I think a big problem because I did a special report on uh, higher education last year. A big problem is there are too many colleges right now, just too much, and you know a lot of the burden is on uh, the faculty to recruit to recruit students, even, and that's interfering with their research and interfering with their teaching, and you know uh, rather than focusing on uh, the need to recruit more students and whether this is right, it, it's a uh, it's time to really reconsider. You know, what's the big problem here, and should we merge certain universities as? No, a solution. Mm.
0: So you think some of the, maybe the reason that so many of these agreements have been made is just because these universities are so desperate for students?
2: Yes, definitely.
0: Mm. Now, another interesting question that was kind of raised is, of, of course, we've seen the Ministry of Education come down kind of hard on this, point out that uh, the, these universities are contravening the laws. I wonder if, uh, you, Klaus, you think that this might be a, a slightly different tone than we would have seen had this been a story that broke during the Ma administration who uh, Ma, of course, uh, was somewhat accommodating of uh, demands from China.
1: I think the outcry in the green camp would have been even bigger Mm -hmm. and more furious if this had come to light under the Ma administration. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe now people are, some people are more willing to give the Tsai government a break and say, okay, you inherited this mess or it's only a reaction to uh, your policies, um, China trying to to, um, treat you unfairly. So uh, I think the Public outcry would have been even bigger,
3: but apparently some people have come out and said that the letters of agreement basically were not the universities officially recognizing of the one China principle, of mm-hmm. course because the one China principle is the China policy of the one China policy, basically, mm-hmm. the one China principle, one China policy, the one China policy being the US one, the one China principle being the one from Beijing. Now, the KMT's Culture and Communications Committee Deputy Director Hong Kai has said the letter was not a pledge of commitment to the one China principle. The signing of it does not violate Article 33-3 of the famous act governing relations between the people of the Taiwan area and the mainland area. And Hong went on to say that the letter is only aimed at keeping students away from political activities.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so kind of, I guess, trying to draw a distinction between the academic issues here and the purely political issues here. Although I, it's kind of the the concept of a university, you know, declaring that they believe or don't believe in the one China. Principle—it's kind of a weird concept. It almost makes them sound like they're sovereign entities. But it's a
3: kind of weird concept—a university agreeing not to teach certain people certain things. Fair enough. I mean, we're going to rip, true as rip, well rip certain pages out of history books. That, uh, oh, that sounds like something that would happen somewhere else. <laughs> oh, my mind must be in the gutter <clears of> this <throat> morning.
0: Really. <clears throat> uh, closing thoughts on this—I'm just going to toss it back to Christine. So, you know, just mm-hmm. based on. Uh you're reporting on taiwan's higher education what w- What do you think it's gonna take to make their future a little
2: bit more secure i think uh universities themselves shouldn't be you know downright against merging or cooperations you know co- just uh cooperations between facilities even sharing faculty uh that that should be you know that should be helpful
0: mm, so a little bit of consolidation
2: mm, a little
3: there's hundred and fifty seven of them apparently. Mm -hmm. That was the figure that the Minister of Education touted this week, 157 colleges and universities across the island.
0: All right, so maybe big reforms that we are going to see going forward there. Up next, International Women's Day was marked this Wednesday all around Taiwan in a number of ways. So we're going to set aside this next section of our show to discuss women's rights in Taiwan, as well as how Taiwan's first female president measures up on this score. Uh, As I said, this Wednesday had speeches and events galore related to women's causes or the politics of gender. I was at one of them, so we are going to start with that. That is the sound of demonstrators joining in an event that organizers dubbed the Women's March Taiwan, wherein uh, nearly 100 marchers holding red balloons and donning uh, the iconic knit pussy hats marched from the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial to Da'an Forest Park in the late afternoon. Uh, So this was a pretty interesting political action because it was a blend of both local Taiwan feminism and expat activism. Uh, Many of the organizers and participants are longtime supporters of women's rights uh, right here in Taiwan, uh, but about half were expats that have been organizing in Taiwan since the inauguration of U.S. President Donald Trump. Uh, and they have been doing so under the banner of Indivisible, uh, which for folks who have been paying attention to activist mobilization in the U.S. over the last couple of months, uh, they would know that basically this is an organization uh, helping to mobilize grassroots folks, pressure Congress in the U.S. So uh, this group, Indivisible Taiwan, is trying to do that from Taiwan all the way from over here. So a uh, very interesting team up that we saw there. As the march progressed, they made their way to a plaza at Da'an Forest Park, uh, delivered a series of speeches. Uh, Kicking it all off was Indivisible Taiwan founder Mary Goodwin. She, like many of the participants, sees a broad set of issues that supporters of gender equality need to take on.
2: We need to be committed to uh, making sure
4: that women's voice is heard. We need to be committed to knowing that uh, women's participation in public in the commercial sector, in the personal uh, sphere, in family life, is valued equally.
0: We need to make sure, above all, that young women and children have
4: access to the education that will give them power.
0: Meanwhile, the event was also attended by a number of prominent Taiwanese, including Legislator Jason Xu of the KMT, Legislator Karen Yu of the DPP, uh, even had a pop musician. We had Laura Veronin there. Uh, and one other legislator that would be familiar to many of our longtime listeners, Yo Mei Nu of the DPP as well. Uh, she is, of course, the sponsor of one of the same sex marriage legalization bills that was introduced last year. In her comments, legislator Yo focused on challenges to gender equality in the workplace. Uh, a big point that she hammered home was how societal expectations here in Taiwan. Can pull many women out of the workforce, and she says this has big consequences even later in life.
2: Many women in Taiwan uh, are pressured to quit work due to marriage, uh, so that in Taiwan, uh, women's uh, participation in the workforce is only about 50%. Uh, This means that in their old age, they do not achieve uh, pay of equality, and they get less in pension. And so even though we are reforming uh, our pension laws, uh, women's rights are still
4: um, being neglected.
0: She says that she's going to be pushing for full pay equality, uh, further support for maternity leave, and, of course, uh, the passage of a bill legalizing same-sex marriage. So, a very interesting piece of activism that occurred that day. Uh, it's going to be even more interesting to see whether or not these groups find common causes, common issues that they can work together on in the future. Uh, Because, of course, you know, the the specific sets of issues that the uh, U.S. expats are looking at are are a little bit different. A little bit different. I actually asked Nu what kinds of ways that she thinks that uh, she can work together with these U.S. expats on. And she was very careful to kind of step back uh, from uh, any direct criticism of Donald Trump, uh, specifically. Um, So... Uh, you know, something to keep an eye on going forward. Uh, Gavin, another thread that we want to keep our eye on was the local politics that kind of emerged on Wednesday. Uh, among them, President Tsai Ing-wen gave a bit of a speech.
3: Yeah, she went and attended an event organized by the Ministry of Health, which celebrated... 10 outstanding Taiwanese women. And speaking at that event, the president said that sacrificing their careers to take on a caretaker role is not only unfair to women, but also a national loss. And she also pledged to remove all hurdles to increase female participation in the workplace.
0: So hitting a similar note there in terms of workplace equality, she uh, kind of, nothing super specific from the comments that I read there, but it seems like uh, she is going to be looking at some kind of resource allocation to help women get better child support and make it a little bit easier for them to stay in the workforce. The
3: fabulously named Directorate General of Budget, Accounting and Statistics. Ooh. Or Mm Dugbas, as they call it released some figures this week to coincide with International Women's Day. It said that the labour participation rate for married men in 2015 stood at 70.5%, while mm. the same rate for women that same year in 2015 stood
0: at 49.6%. So a huge disparity there. Uh,
3: however, it said that the labour participation rate for unmarried men during the same period stood at 64.3%, while unmarried women, their labour percentage, stood at 61.5%. Mm. So more unmarried women work than married women. So, so that's what that's saying. And about mm-hmm. the same amount of blokes work than they're married or single.
0: So kind of underscoring that idea that it, it really is marriage that is creating this barrier and, you know, marriage and family obligations is creating this extra burden for a lot of women here in Taiwan. Uh, interestingly, the KMT also came, kind of came out swinging this week, uh, criticizing Tsai Ing-wen for, well, in their words, they feel that she has not done enough for women during her time in office. So that was the uh, the high politics of all of this. Uh, Christine, what were you watching during this Women's Day?
2: Uh, there's this one story that always comes up. They always uh, commemorate the loss of Peng Anju, Um of uh, Women's rights activist that passed away in 1996. Uh, she was like pushing for a law uh, to ensure a quota for women in the legislative Yuan. But uh, just when it was about to pass, she was murdered, like brutally murdered, uh, in November of 1996. And like days after that, the law passed. Uh, many um, new committees for gender equality were were set up. You know that was 1996 was a moment for women's rights and Mm. you know that always comes up this year so i've been reading a lot about that getting Mm -hmm. to know the story more
0: Mm -hmm. right and uh just talking about gender equality in the legislative yuan an interesting measure that came out recently would be daycares uh, for folks uh, both uh, the legislators and their staffers i believe
2: yeah the legislative yuan is like leading an example with this uh so they have a daycare center in place right now inside the legislative yuan which is also open to other agencies other officials um, and also we see for corporations for companies that have more than 100 employees they are required to have a daycare facility and right now in Nangang there's one company I think it's Game Mania a uh, game company they have a daycare set facility but they're like the only one uh, daycare facility in the whole science park hmm. so you know there's a room for improvement right there.
3: That seems a bit skewed that doesn't it? You thought all the companies that have offices in the fancy Shinny district that have more than 100 employees, you've got China Petroleum down there. Mm. I wonder if they have one.
1: Okay. What about the China Post, then? How many employees over there?
2: <laughs> Only, like, uh, less than 50. So we don't qualify.
1: <laughs> Dodge <laughs> so the bullet. Off, off the hook, yeah. <laughs> off the hook. Uh, so one issue, I mean, we've
0: been talking here mostly about workplace equality. Uh, one issue we haven't gotten to uh, that was also discussed by many at the march that I went to on Wednesday uh, would be domestic abuse in Taiwan, of course, uh, women are disproportionately the victims of such abuse, uh, and uh, it kind of surfaced in the news as well Christine
2: yeah, because uh, in Taiwan, like one of the largest pieces of news was uh, Tong Zhong Yin, the Taipei counselor that got involved in Hong um tong yin 's wife came out and uh, accused him of physically assaulting him, and you know the news just blown up. And that just really raised awareness for how women right now are still the largest victims for, of social sexual assault and domestic abuse right now. Mm. So,
3: Well, he denied that, didn't he, for a while? And then his wife released photographs of her not looking too well, mm. to which he was forced to say, oh, whoops.
1: Well, it also goes to show that in Taiwan, like in many other places, I think the personal relationship with your partner is the most dangerous place to be, I think. You're probably more likely to be physically assaulted in your relationship by your boyfriend or by your husband, then you are just walking the street at night.
2: It's a private space. It's unregulated. It's unseen. Mm.
0: Uh, Christine, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but uh, one issue that a lot of the marchers brought up was just this idea of how slowly culture is changing in Taiwan and this uh, idea that even now uh, women in Taiwan are expected to be responsible for uh, the majority of the housework at home, the majority of the domestic responsibilities. And this is also a really big uh, burden on women that would like to uh, focus more on their careers, uh, do you, do you, do you feel like the culture uh, and attitudes towards this set of issues is changing in Taiwan, or, or has it been pretty static?
2: I can speak from my personal experience and from uh, the people around me who are mostly you know in their mid twenties or thirties. Uh, a lot of the girls, women uh, close to me, they're not looking for marriage anymore because they want to focus on their career. So you know the situation isn't really changing as much mm. cuz people expect women to, you know, handle most of the domestic work still mm-hmm. and you know there's still this idea of uh there's a chinese idiom called fu tang fu shui." It's, it's like when the husband sings and the wife follows so that that's that's still in um people's minds the way people think
0: mhm and uh and, and so it sounds like you're saying that for many of the young professionals that you speak to, the idea is that you can either have a career or a family. It's, it's difficult to have both. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Up next, uh, we have a very serious report out from the U.S. State Department uh, detailing human rights uh, violations or alleged human rights violations right here in Taiwan. This is the Country Reports on Human Rights Practices for 2016, Gavin.
3: This is the US State Department's recent report. And it spoke of human rights practices for 2016, like you said, and it was released on March the 3rd. And it report indicated that Taiwan's principal human rights problem last year was the exploitation of foreign workers, including foreign crew members on long-haul fishing vessels, as well as household caregivers. Types of exploitation included in the report were migrant workers becoming victims of domestic violence and official corruption.
0: Hmm. So that's one of the major issues that they really highlighted there is the plight of uh, immigrant workers here in Taiwan.
3: Apparently, yes. They also mentioned in the report uh, concerns over media self-censorship, vote-buying, overwork, a lack of accessible transport for those with disabilities, gender inequality, and a rise in child abuse. Mm. This is the U.S. State Department.
0: Right. So this is what U.S. State Department came up with. Uh, when they were trying to look at problems here in taiwan, uh, pretty interesting I mean that that issue on immigrant rights was actually uh, also reflected in this is the last time i 'll bring it back to this, but the uh, march that I went to on Wednesday, the speakers there. Uh, also highlighted this issue because, of course, uh, immigrant workers, about half of them in Taiwan, are uh, domestic workers working in the homes of Taiwanese, providing uh, often elder care or care for uh, disabled individuals that uh, have a hard time taking care of themselves. And for those workers, uh, as we've kind of hinted at already on the show, they are especially vulnerable to abuse because... You know, they're in the home. They're not in the workplace. It's very hard to monitor uh, the way that they're being treated. And so this is uh, an issue that a number of uh, feminist groups are highlighting. Uh, it was also uh, kind of a stark reminder of just how hard they uh, need to work, because uh, as one attendee of the event on Wednesday pointed out, uh, there were no individuals from Southeast Asian countries uh, in attendance, uh, perhaps reflecting the fact that, you know, if uh, you you work in that field, it's uh, difficult to find a day off anytime. Uh, let's toss things over though uh, to Klaus. Uh, human rights in Taiwan is an issue that you've covered a fair amount.
1: Well, more specifically, I think the situation of migrant workers is really one where the government has its work cut out for it. There have been other reports before. In 2009, Taiwan ratified the international covenants on human rights, even though they're not a UN member. And then in 2013 and again in 2017, groups of international experts came here, reviewed the situation, and they also wrote reports with recommendations what Taiwan could do to improve the legal situation. And um, the situation of migrant workers was also something that was mentioned again and again. And of course, like the domestic caretakers, the fishermen are also in a situation where you might have rules and regulations, but if they're being followed or not, is something you just cannot control. So, in the end, I think it's about changing the mindset of people as much as changing the regulations and the enforcement. But how are you going to go about that?
3: Hmm. No, actually, when, when of course the, the the fishermen on the long the the far seas fleet fishing boats who came to light over, last year over the death of an Indonesian fisherman who was beaten to death by the boat's captain and another member. Mm-hmm. That started an investigation, and then of course it called, and they called, the government were asked to ensure that all, employ, all people of foreign nationalities employed by Taiwan's Far Seas fleet were covered by the island's basically social security system. Mm -hmm. Insurance system. The government, well, basically this was the fisheries agency, turned around and said, well, that's a bit impossible because most of these fishing boat crew members on the Far Seas fleet are, in fact, not employed through Taiwan. They are employed in their home ports, which means that someone employed in Fiji, for example, to fish on a boat in the Pacific is obviously not covered by Taiwan's health insurance and social security system because they're not employed in Taiwan. They're employed direct from Fiji in that case.
1: So getting rid of such loopholes is definitely one thing that the government should mm. should take seriously. Another thing is that, of course, there have been a number of reforms recently trying to um, improve the situation little by little. For example, to lessen the um, dependency of migrant workers on the brokerage agencies, there's been one reform that said um, you c- it's more easy to switch employers once you're in Taiwan. You don't need to go back via the brokers find a new employer and also you do not need to leave taiwan every three years and go back and then you have a hard time coming back and getting your old job maybe so some some things are happening but one thing that the government still has on its list is ratifying another international agreement which is called the international convention on the protection of the rights of all migrant workers and members of their families Mm. So that's one of those international human rights conventions the government has not ratified yet. Mm-hmm. And the vice president, Chen Jianwen, mm-hmm. just um, in January said that this is high on their list of priorities.
0: Mm. As, as somebody who's kind of looked at uh, these reports over time and, and the way that Taiwan has responded to these reports, do you think that they make a difference? I mean, uh, this week we saw the government come out kind of defending its record and saying, you know, this is stuff that we take seriously but, you know, some, some some people at the State Department make a report, some people from the EU make a report. Does that actually matter for
1: the progress that Taiwan is making? Well, it's just my impression, but I think that Taiwanese and Taiwanese government as well is pretty interested in what kind of headlines it gets internationally, especially with the diplomatic isolation it's in. Good headlines are something they can rely on to build their reputation abroad, and bad headlines would be something that damages it. So I think they are paying... a close attention to what's being reported internationally about taiwan
2: a funny thing about taiwanese media is we report about foreign media a lot like we report those reports mm-hmm. a lot yeah <laughs> so yeah i'm just agreeing with what um, klaus is saying right well yeah. if
0: if uh, this report had been covered in time magazine this would probably be like the front page of the apple daily so that is definitely very true all right, we're going to be rounding out the entire first half of the show right there. When we return, uh, we'll be putting our newest guest to work, explaining to us what's going on between mega corporations Hanhai and Toshiba. And we'll round out the program with an extended look at transitional justice as we come up on the one-year mark of the Thai presidency. Eh, well, we're like two months away, but close enough. We need a hook for this one. So stay tuned for all that and more when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Klaus Bartenhagen, and Christine Chow. All right, on to the business. Hanhai and Toshiba have been in the news over the last couple of days. Uh, And this one's kind of easy for me, because uh, you actually wrote up a report on this for the China Post, Christina. So uh, I'm just going to steal your headline, and uh, you can explain the rest to us. So your lead read... Two of Taiwan's biggest corporations, Hanhai Precision Industry and Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, declined to comment Tuesday on rumors that they will partner up to seek a majority stake in Japanese hardware firm Toshiba's chip memory chip business. Please explain the words that just came out of my mouth.
2: Sorry, lead. too long. <laughs> but, blame it on the editor, blame okay. it on the editor. Okay, basically, Toshiba, everybody knows Toshiba, a big mm-hmm. Japanese company. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, Kai is uh, pretty firm, pretty confident in buying, in bidding for a majority stake in Toshiba because Toshiba right now is in deep financial trouble uh, after they acquired a nuclear firm, in a U.S. nuclear firm called Westinghouse.
0: Uh, and so they've been losing money on that deal?
2: Yeah, so they need to balance off the costs. That's why they're seeking to uh, sell off a part of their memory chip business. Mm. And the memory chip business happens to be like their core business. It generates... So much of their revenue, I think it's a... Okay, Toshiba's memory chip unit accounts for 20% of the global market share. It's the second highest after Samsung, Mm. and it accounts for almost 30% of Toshiba's revenue in general.
0: Mm. So what is in this for Hanhai, also known as Foxconn? Of course, last year, uh, as we reported on, they also uh, bought a controlling share in Sharp, another Japanese company. So what is interesting about this other Japanese company now?
2: Okay, so Sharp is a uh, home appliances maker. It makes TVs, um, things you use at home. Mm-hmm. So right now, this is all
3: part of Kai's strategy, a wider strategy. They're- well, Toshiba, of course, like Hai, supplies components to Apple to make their lovely gadgets
0: well that's a big part of this which is yeah. a big so part of the is... deal which
3: is basically a big part of the deal because hon of course wants to expand its ties with apple mm. and toshiba is a major supplier of memory chips to apple for its portable devices yeah so, so this will boost hon Hai's standing with apple more money to hon it doesn't matter hon and apple already work together apple should technically say oh yeah hon is just coming in toshiba we've worked with hon before it'll all be rosy hubbly bubbly lovely jabbly.
0: Right. Gavin Gavin is using a dis- dismissive tone because he, of course, has a BlackBerry. But for folks out there that have iPhones, uh, now you know where your uh, memory chips might be coming from. But, uh, Christina, you were saying?
2: So, yeah, Apple accounts for like half of uh, Hong Hai's revenue. Mm-hmm. And if it secures this uh, bid with Toshiba, it means that it could secure more orders from Apple and, you know, Their standing would be more strong. Nobody could replace them, Mm. which is, you know, they're deeply afraid of because so much of their money is coming from this American company.
0: So for those of us that don't necessarily follow the ins and outs of what Chipmaker is doing, what and all the different places that our phone is getting, people are making money off our phone getting put together. What would you say is the significance of this story for Taiwan business or the Taiwan economy? What What does this
2: tell us? Okay, so Hai, along with TSMC, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, these two companies are both strong drivers of growth for um, Taiwan's economy. In fact, they account for nearly 15% of total company ca- tax collected last year. Mm. That's a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and and so if Honghai manages to pull off this deal, is, is this like a sign of vitality that they're on uh, the up and up? Are they going to be running the world soon?
2: If they acquire Toshiba... Uh, According to analysts, like I've read a few papers, um, analysts believe that if they acquire Toshiba, it's going to be like provide an immediate financial boost to Honghai because you could directly take the clients they already have. And, you know, that's the the revenue they have. So Toshiba would be a driver of growth for Honghai, which is what they're seeking right now because they've been struggling for the past few years because their growth isn't just isn't increasing as fast as they hope.
0: Mm. Now, just looking uh, at the deal itself, uh, what do you think are the chances that this deal is going to go through? I, I, uh, I read that within Japan itself, there's a little bit of uh, concern, uh, even among regulators, for you know giving uh, ownership and control to yet another foreign-owned uh, company, and, and in particular, the fact that... Uh, Hanhai relies so much on factories in China, uh, there's some concerns about intellectual property security maybe leaking into China and uh, perhaps uh, hurting Japanese industry.
2: A recent a recent Reuters report uh, said that the government Japanese government does not back the Honghai deal mm. because they think their ties are too close with China. Mm-hmm. It does have most of its operations in mainland China and it hires around a million employees in the mainland alone, so yes, the ties are definitely close.
0: Uh, so, 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 despite that, do you think that uh, Terry Guo seems uh, the uh, the head of Hanhai? Terry Guo still seems pretty pretty bullish on this deal. He's said that he's confident that it's going to go through. Do you think that he has a re- any reason to be confident, or should we doubt that?
2: So, before the sharp deal passed through, everybody was a bit skeptical because uh, Japanese companies don't usually sell to foreign buyers, and it's actually a bit of a hit to their national pride. So, but the sharp sharp uh, deal came through.
3: If oh, it, just another point here. Apparently Toshiba is the second biggest NAND chip producer after Samsung. If just in case it's a fact, you'd want to know that.
0: You can, next trivia night, next pub quiz, maybe that will be the thing that clinches it up for you. Yeah, Who knows?
3: Yeah, maybe they'll ask, what is a NAND chip? <laughs> <laughs> I fail on that one.
0: What what, what 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 was that called? A NAND
2: chip? A NAND chip. It's a flash memory chip. I'm not like a ge- genius expert <laughs> on this, but it's a type of memory chip.
3: All right. As opposed to a DRAM memory chip.
0: Because ah. there's mm-hmm. a DRAM
3: memory chip and a NAND memory chip.
0: All right. Uh, Chris- Christina already putting us to shame. Right. Good okay. deal.
2: Wait, DRAM memory chips, Taiwan is great at. We have um, oh. big companies producing that.
3: It's just these NAND things. They're a bit <laughs> NAND.
0: That's, uh, We needed so much help on that. Uh, all right. Last big question I'm going to put to you. If this deal does go through, does that mean that we get Terry Gua as the president in 2020?
2: That I don't know. (laughs) He does have a lot of supporters coming from um, the KMT.
0: He does seem to. He does seem to. All right. So maybe this will be the thing uh, that clinches it up for uh, Terry Gua. We'll just have to wait and see. But we're going to round out that story right there and head to our final discussion for the broadcast. And we're setting the rest of our broadcast aside for a conversation with Dr. Ernest Caldwell, who lectures in Chinese law at the School of Oriental and African Studies. As I said a little bit earlier, uh, we spoke with Dr. Caldwell just as the Tai administration was gearing up for its campaign of transitional justice. We are now coming up on almost a year of that project. And uh, maybe even more importantly than that, with last week's two to eight Remembrances, You know, we're hearing right now a lot more about new ways the government is planning to pursue transitional justice. So uh, I thought this would be a very good time to revisit this topic. Uh, Just to lay out a little bit more exactly who Professor Caldwell is. He researches uh, specifically human rights, democracy, and transitional justice here in Taiwan. Uh, Even beyond that, though, he studies these topics around the world as well. So he brings with him a lot of perspective, a broad perspective on this topic. So uh, always curious to hear his thoughts. He joins us now by Skype from the UK.
4: Professor Caldwell, thanks for being here. Uh, Thank you for having me again.
0: All right. And uh, I do want this to be a fairly wide ranging conversation. uh, But just to start off, let's take a look specifically at the news of the last two weeks or so. Of course, with uh, the remembrances of the 228 massacre, uh, President Tsai has uh, announced a a number of measures that she's kind of throwing under the banner of transitional justice, Uh, probably the most prominent being the declassification of a huge number of documents related to the 228 massacre and the white terror era. Uh, and she's also pledging further research into them. We saw a number of research institutions, libraries, uh, sort of saying that they were going to assist with all that. Uh, and then down the line, we're expecting some kind of a further review of what they find in those documents. So uh, that's going to be something that we'll be hearing about for uh, years to come, I imagine. Also... Uh, The Thai administration kind of floated the possibility of potentially renaming the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial uh, and perhaps even repurposing uh, the building itself. So just looking at that kind of flurry of news that has been coming out, what in that mix really sticks out to you as being especially relevant to transitional justice for
4: Taiwan? Um, to be honest, I mean, everything that's been going on is is things that have happened in other transitions um, throughout the world, um, be it, you know, post-Soviet transitions um, or sort of uh, post-conflict transitions. Um, and I think one of the most interesting things, and it's something that's sort of been one of the sticking points for transitional justice throughout Taiwan's sort of post-democratic history, Um, is the the documents themselves and access to a variety of documentation that provides um, better clarity to what's actually going on. Um, So a lot of people have anecdotal evidence of things that have happened, individuals who disappeared, um, certain acts that were perpetrated. But actual government documentation and proof of these incidents has been something that's been very difficult to come by. And it's proven in many ways to be an impediment to certain people seeking some form of redress um, because they simply don't have access to documents related to family members or even themselves in some ways because they're still seen as classified state secrets documents. So, pushing this agenda for declassifying more and more documents um, and not just declassifying them but actually going through them and collecting them from other areas um, is seen as is extremely important and there's I, I believe there's a piece of legislation. Um, that's being floated around or the idea of legislation on um, political party documentation that would make it um, so that the government could request and um, receive documentation from individual political party holdings, uh, sort of private documentation that could also be related. And again, the time frame for this piece of legislation would look specifically at the martial law period and the white terror period. So it would be directed towards the KMT and its affiliates, much like the assets law. Um so yes this is one of the more important aspects of it because not only does it simply give you know peace of mind to people who don't really know what's happened um to me you know in the past um but allows you know sort of the government to sit down formulate a formal report on the white terror which has never been done um and basically set the stage for learning from the past and moving on um which is what many uh, of these sort of commissions that sort of ciphers through all these um, misinformation is, is sort of set up to do.
0: Mm. Well, you know, of course, we have seen similar investigations, similar reports in the past. Uh, 2006, 2007, under the Chen Shui-bin administration, we had investigations, we had commissions, they made a report. Uh, of course, that was, you know, primarily directed at look uh, looking at who was you know responsible for the 228 massacre itself what's going to be new here what is different about this series of investigations and reports
4: so a lot of the documentation and and sort of government reports that have been that have come out in the past have been more specifically looking at the 228 incident itself and there's been much less that has been done over the entirety of the white terror period so one thing is we're going to look at a greater scope um, in terms of the, the time period. So looking at the longer durée of um, the period from 1947, 48, 49, um, and then also include sort of the post-49 period in Taiwan up to 1987. Um, many of those documents were um, sealed as state secret documents. And so that period has never had a really formal treatment.
0: All right. And uh, getting out of the most recent news now and stepping back uh, further to sort of the beginnings of transitional justice uh, over the last year, probably the most prominent step, uh, really the main form that transitional justice has taken is this ill-gotten party assets settlement committee that the Thai administration has put together to look at the assets of Well, I I mean, ostensibly all parties in Taiwan, but really, uh, practically speaking, to look at the KMT and any assets uh, that the KMT possesses that they deem to be, quote unquote, illicit. This has been a very controversial step. Of course, the KMT itself has had its assets frozen and has struggled to meet various financial requirements over the year. They have blasted the move very strongly. What, what, what do you make of the assets issue? Has the DPP been able to do what it wanted to do or what it should
4: be doing? I think that it's been one of it was basically one of the first big pieces of transitional justice legislation that they pushed through. It was a keystone in Tsai's um, overall platform and the DPP's platform as well. And it was one of the first really big contentious pieces of legislation that they were able to push through um, with the DPP held um, majority legislature. So in some ways, I guess you could say the, the committee has certainly functioned as it was expected to everyone knew that the the bill was directed towards the kmt towards the kmt affiliates holdings um, and that's exactly what the committee has gone after Um, but they seem to have gone after it rather hastily in some aspects and rather heavy-handedly so uh, overall freezing of kmt accounts which doesn't just hurt the kmt members but hurts basically the army of people that work for the kmt that may not be politically motivated but people from tutorial services, I mean, a whole range of individuals who rely on the KMT for salaries. Um, And so this has had in some ways a slight backlash, I think, um, against the DPP and especially against the committee. And so the KMT has been rather um, intelligently going about uh, petitioning uh, various legal forms for review of these actions, getting some of their assets unfrozen. And I think that in some ways their arguments are warranted because the committee does have a very quick sort of snap judgment style of um, a power to freeze assets, which is very problematic. Um, and so they freeze the assets and then can start to review them. And this creates numerous problems, whereas the KMT is in many ways arguing they must be reviewed, as you said, beforehand, and only then can they be frozen. Um, And that makes sense from a legal perspective, uh, but from sort of a political perspective and from the transitional justice perspective, I think what the DPP is worried about is just a rapid liquidation of any type of finances, lands, et cetera, um, making the task of sort of sorting through the KMT assets even more difficult as time goes on. Um, And so the the DPP has run into a few sort of legal stumbling blocks with various um, high court decisions. Decisions going against them, um, or at least um, sort of tempering uh, some of the the arrangements that they have made via this committee.
0: Now, moving away from the assets issue to another very important issue, the issue of transitional justice for Taiwan's Aboriginal peoples. Now, this is certainly something that the Tsai administration has addressed. Uh, tai, of course, gave a very prominent apology to Taiwan's Aboriginal peoples uh, rather early in uh, her tenure, early uh, in her time in office. But the question has always been, you know, beyond the words, beyond the apology, what is the administration actually going to do? And over the week, we've seen growing dissatisfaction with what the Thai administration has done uh, there has been some movement very recently in terms of land rights returning uh, traditional uh, aboriginal lands to uh, tribes, but a uh, number of groups have taken to the streets saying that those moves have not gone far enough. This is something that we discussed on the show last week, if our listeners want to go back and listen to that. Uh, so clearly, uh, growing dissatisfaction there. Uh, so, Professor Caldwell, I mean, this is going to be an issue that will face... The Thai administration for some time
4: will it not? Yes, I think it definitely will, and it's something that's been a big issue i think for for all administrations is is the aboriginal issue it's the transitional justice issues attached to um the Aboriginal community go all the way back to the Japanese colonial era, and even before um as Chinese settlers came in, pushed Aborigines off their land, the Japanese era, the things that they did there. Um these have not been addressed. Very little is typically mentioned about the Japanese period. And while many of sort of ethnically Han Chinese um, did suffer under the Japanese, um, the Aboriginal groups suffered much, much more, um, both in terms of loss of land um, and specific abuses against them. Um, moving on to sort of the KMT, White Terror era, um, you have similar problems that exist. Um, Land grabs were probably one of the biggest issues that affected the Aboriginal communities. And now that, again, you have the time of transitional justice being sort of the peak of the political sphere right now and people talking about it all over the place, um, Aboriginal voices are are quite often being lost, I think. Um, Tsai did have a very, you know, very nice apology. She made a very public statement um, and has done a lot to visibly... I guess, in many ways, sort of endear the the DPP and her presidency to the plight of the Aboriginal groups. However, I think one of the issues is that talk doesn't necessarily translate into policy. And there are numerous issues um, that are affecting the Aboriginal communities from simple identity rights. So you have numerous groups that claim to be tribes that aren't officially recognized by the government. Um, down to these land issues that have popped up, as you said, once again, um, more recently, as to whether or not Aboriginal groups can lay claim to specific lands that they can prove were taken from them illegally or um, via force and things of this nature. Um, And so I think that to an extent it is quite a marginalized issue, um, and that is not necessarily a good thing if, part of what the DPP and Tsai was arguing is that this transitional justice will move all of Taiwan forward because the the one problem of transitional justice is that it can be a very strong dividing force in a society, especially if the society still pertain that contains members, party members um, of the former oppressive regime. But in Taiwan, you have that. You also have sort of the Taiwanese versus mainlander versus Aboriginal groups. So it's a much more diverse multicultural society, each with specific claims to a transitional justice need. At the moment, it appears that these Aboriginal voices um, are definitely not as strongly represented both in official political discourse as well as um, within the legislature.
0: All right. And uh, we're going to close things out with a ridiculously broad question. But, you know, as somebody who has researched similar programs of transitional justice, similar efforts to grapple with those tricky questions of history and human rights and democracy, uh, dealing with those complicated threads that all kind of tangle together, uh, how do you think that uh, the transitional justice program we've seen over nearly a year so far stacks up with uh, what we've seen elsewhere around the world? If if, if we had to give the Tide administration some kind of a report card, what what would go on that report card?
4: To be honest, I think there, there are, of course, pros and cons to every step. Um, and I think overall it's only been a year, and it's a year in which as I said in the past, it's the first time the DPP uh, and anyone really has had the opportunity to use the government um, and government policy as well as the legislature to bring transitional justice up to the forefront um, because you no longer have the KMT with a majority to block any calls um, for specific transitional justice legislation. So I think that the fact you have, um, A very strong sort of out the gate push um, is expected and I don't necessarily want to give it sort of a negative report card because I think they have done significant things. I mean the DPP, I mean if you look at Tsai Ing-wen for example in her campaign speeches and her inaugural speeches she has ticked the boxes I think formally in many of the things that she had argued for. So she has set up an illicit assets committee. Um, that piece of legislation was pushed through. They have been actively going out and seeking out these assets. She did formally make her apology, and she has been pushing for more transitional justice awareness, access to documentation, et cetera. So I think overall, if you want to sort of use a scorecard, she has in many ways um, done a great deal of what she had promised, um, even within you know the first year. But there are things, I think, that are missing. Um, one is the fact that the Assets Committee went through, even though it was very difficult, um, the promotion of transitional justice bill has still stalled. Um, and this was supposed to set up the truth commission that would be empowered to collect all these documents and produce a formal report and things of this nature on the martial law period. Um And this hasn't necessarily materialized um and in part, I think it's because there are a lot of other things that are sort of a priority on the legislative agenda um and again, it's a very contentious issue um and it seems to have sort of fallen into the wayside, although I saw recently um there have been arguments that it's going to be sort of very rigorously pushed in this upcoming legislative session um so we'd, I would like to see that go through and have a formally established Commission, not simply a presidential commission as tying one has been arguing um, established, but have one that's formally legislated with sort of a broad range of powers to produce these reports and collect all this documentation and make a very formal statement um, about. The, the the martial law white terror period. Um, so I think on the whole, if you look comparatively at how other states and, and transitional societies have have dealt with this problem, it's an extremely long process. And Taiwan so far has definitely um, done a great deal in an extremely short period of time. And it's supposed to be a bit messy because it's a very messy topic that is prone to high levels of emotion on both sides of the issue, um, but how Taiwan deals with that in the future to sort of start to temper those emotions and push forward to, I mean, the point of transitional justice to finally move on, um, that I think will be, need, to, need to be reassessed perhaps in maybe two to three to four years to see really how far transitional justice has come.
0: All right. And once again, we have been speaking to Dr. Ernest Caldwell of the School of Oriental and African Studies. Dr. Caldwell, thanks for being here.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
0: All right. And that about rounds it up for the broadcast for today. But for our podcast listeners, as always, we have a bonus podcast story kind of on the lighter end of things. Although this one uh, contains the word misery,
3: Gavin. Is this on the lighter end of things? Yeah, apparently Taiwan was ranked 60th among 65 major countries and territories in the latest Misery Index, which was released on March the 3rd by Bloomberg. <laughs> on the lighter
0: end of things.
3: Yep, But, appara- but
0: it's, a, it's low on the index, meaning that it has less misery, is the general idea here.
3: Yeah, you have to read that twice, actually, because you think if it's ranked 60th, it's up there nearly 65th. Right. I thought one would be good, but now the other, it works the other way around. So we're, this one.
0: we're on the good end of that list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Less apparently, misery.
3: And apparently, the report evaluated countries based on inflation and unemployment, with higher totals indicating greater levels of unhappiness. Apparently, Taiwan scored 5.2 out of 10 in the 2017 edition of the report. Ooh, a 5.2. Finishing below regional neighbors Hong Kong and South Korea. Hong Kong, if you're interested, finished in 56th place. And South Korea finished in 57th place.
0: OK. This Taiwan, is kind of, it's kind of a narrow measurement is, of misery.
3: It is. But Taiwan was also cited as being among the most improved economies this year. Mm-hmm. Basically alongside Ecuador, Hong Kong, the Netherlands, China and Russia. OK.
0: So basically what this report, uh, again, it's from Bloomberg, I think, uh, is saying is that Taiwan has low inflation and low unemployment. Those are the two take home points.
3: Basically. Also, Taiwan frequently performs well in global reports of public happiness, wealth and well-being. There Did we you go. know that in the Global Prosperity Index, which was released in November of 2015 by the public policy group Legatum Institute, Taiwan was ranked 21st among 142 countries and territories, largely due to Taiwan's strong performance in safety and security.
0: Like, 70% of the show is just lists of things today.
3: It is, isn't it? But you know what? Guess you came bottom. In the misery index. Or guess who came top in the misery index?
0: Uh, yeah, who, who was most miserable? Venezuela. Venezuela, apparently, yeah, apparently
3: Venezuela topped the list for the third consecutive year as mm-hmm. the most miserable country in the world to live in.
0: They have, like, hyperinflation going on right now, so they no do, there.
1: They we do, don't they? they not they? Yeah. So, who was least miserable?
3: Thailand recorded the lowest ranking in... Thailand.
1: Thailand, hang on, least miserable.
3: Now hang on, Thailand recorded the lowest ranking in the survey, below Singapore in 64th, Japan and Switzerland both in 62nd, and Iceland in 61st. So it's Thailand.
0: There we go, Thailand. Oh, Thailand. If you, you don't go. want to be miserable, head over to Thailand. So you Uh Yeah, that's uh, that's the slogan.
1: So, so wait a second, did they call people? Was it a survey where you randomly call people, or did they just take other data and come up with this ranking?
3: Apparently the story that I've got in front of me doesn't say, Klaus... I'd be a little
0: surprised if they were calling people, though.
3: you say, are you happy? <laughs> no! I'm very angry today! You hang the phone, they go, that's, yeah. a that's a no, that's a no!
0: Ta- Taiwan would have, been better, would have done better, but they made the mistake of calling Gavin, so it, it, <laughs> it really dragged down the ranking pretty far. Absolutely uh klaus uh, so okay so the country that you call home not a miserable country is that you feel that that's correct you're not a miserable guy well, in taiwan
1: well, if you ask the germans living in germany i think you will get a more miserable uh, image because you know we tend to be uh, have a perfectionist streak ah. and be very self-critical and be
2: and not well, satisfied until it's
1: 100 percent. and so mm-hmm. i ran away and came to taiwan and i'm quite happy here okay. cannot, cannot speak for all of my countrymen so.
2: <laughs>
0: not miserable that's a good start uh, Christine do you, do, do you feel like your views are reflected in this report not miserable
2: not that miserable no not no, that no. miserable <laughs> oh. no it's normal to be miserable sometimes human nature I guess that's yeah, true I really resonate with uh, the safe, safety and security part though um, mm-hmm. yeah because like, I've had conversations with my uh, girlfriends in India mm. and they're like genuinely afraid of walking in the dark in the nighttime.
0: Yeah, you can have that problem. You can go to any random dark alley in Taipei any time of night. You'll be pretty much okay. All right, we'll have to leave it there for today. That is it for the show. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan this week broadcast every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour, right here on ICRT FM 100, right about 8:15 p.m. you can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, a couple of other places as well. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. And remember, be happy. Be happy. That's an important message from Gavin Phipps right there. Uh, Not too
3: often, though. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just, like, occasionally be happy. Don't overdo it, everybody. Don't overdo your happiness. Uh, Klaus Bardenhagen, happy as well? I'm really happy now. <laughs> Goodbye. Good to hear. And Christine Chow, uh, happy? Uh happy.
2: Is today a happy day? Today's a happy
3: day, yeah.
0: Good to hear. It's all right. bloody
3: miserable day.
0: Well, going by the weather, but we don't need to go by <laughs> the weather. Thanks for all of you listening. Hope you're happy as well. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. That is the sound of demonstrators joining in an event that organizers dubbed the Women's March Taiwan, wherein nearly a hundred marchers holding red balloons and donning that iconic knit uh, pussy hats. Can I say that on air? I think no, I can say no, that.
3: You can't get away with saying that about Women's Day, can you? Really? That's,
0: that's the word that they used. I didn't come just, up with that just, word.
2: Just little kitty cats. So.
3: I'm, I'm qu- that's a direct quote.
2: I think it should be fine, right? I mean, yeah.
0: We, Leave it. It. I, I have backup. I have backup here. <laughs> <clears throat> We're in uh, nearly a hundred marchers holding red balloons and donning uh, the iconic knit pussy hats. <laughs>